Um, if you have the notes there in front of you, want, or maybe you haven't gotten them yet, they're there on the tables for you. Um, the portion tonight or for this past week is this section here in Numbers 13, and it's Shalak Lecha in Hebrew, and it means to send for yourself, and it's the idea of them sending out these, uh, the ten spies. You remember the story of the ten spies going into the promised land, they come back with a bad report. Well, that's what we're going to look at, <clears throat> and um, it's, uh, it's actually a pretty fascinating story. So uh, starting off here in Numbers 13 is where our portion really gets started, <clears throat> and these first three verses say this, and Yehovah spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Send one man from each tribe of their fathers, everyone a leader among them. And by the command of Yehovah, Moses sent them into the wilderness of Paran, all of them who were heads of the children of Israel. Now, before we go on, I want you to notice something here. <clears throat> this has been about two years since the Mount Sinai event, since they came out of, of Egypt. They have now arrived there on the border of the Promised Land. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. They've got the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day, the angel of the Lord. They've got the Ark of the Covenant, like we talked about last week, that's literally going out at times, going out before them. Don't ask me to explain that. That's just what the Scripture says. They've made it now to the Promised Land. They've come out of Egypt. They've seen all the plagues. They've seen the firstborn of Egypt died. Um... They saw all this stuff. They heard the voice of God, which, once again, <clears throat> all the Jewish scholars say that the closest sound man can make that resembles the voice of God is the sound of the shofar. Because when they heard him speak, that's what it says, that they heard the sound of this trumpet getting louder and louder and louder, but they understood what God was saying which was reenacted again in what we know as the Acts 2 Pentecost uh, movement or, or moment. Well, all of that has happened. They've heard all of this. Uh, they've heard God's voice. And God tells them, he tells through Moses. Now, Moses, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send in the leaders of the people to go in and bring back a report. There's 12 and 10 come back with a bad report. But he said, here's what I want you to notice. You might want to circle it on your notes there. Because he says, send the men out to spy the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. I'm giving it to them. Man, we are so slow to learn and quick to forget. They were and we still are to this day. Uh, so the next few verses deal with the names of these men who were leaders of these, these 12 tribes, basically. They were seen as leaders among them, and they're sent in to the land to spy it out. When you get to verse 23 is when they come back with their report. <laughs> so picking up with verse 23, it says... 
And they came to the wadi of Eshcol and cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bore it between two of them on a pole, also of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the wadi of Eshcol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down from there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. So... <clears throat> Um, they make a point here, God makes a point here for us to understand that <clears throat> this land he sent them into was not a barren, desolate land. It was very fruitful. Um, as a matter of fact, he wants us to understand that they cut down a cluster of grapes, a branch with a cluster of grapes on it, and it took two men to carry it. That's pretty big. Now, on that, they also put pomegranates and figs and all that or whatever, but it took two men to put this on a pole and carry it to talk about the abundance of the land. And here's something else that's important to, just a side note, this just came to my memory, it's not in your notes anywhere, but <clears throat> the people of Israel were often referred to as God's vineyard. And what a lot of people are not fully aware of <clears throat> is that on the temple itself, on the outside of the temple, one of the pictures to uh, portray the people of Israel were clusters of grapes because God referred to them as his vineyard. And they say that these grapes, uh, these ornaments, if you will, on the, <clears throat> on the building, that each grape was about the size of a grown man. It's huge. So the, the spies go in, they spy it out for 40 days, and what do they bring out? Grapes. Big grapes. Because God is saying, listen, I'm going to give this land to you, and you are my vineyard, and I'm going to plant you in there, and you're going to be a blessing beyond comprehension. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a grape or a cluster of grapes that big. Have you? I, mean, I mean, just have never seen it. So then you jump down to verse 27, and this is the report that they're giving. And this is where I think uh, this can be, uh, be relatable to us today. And I want to show you how you can tell and you can see what's really going on around you. You ever feel like the world's gone crazy? People don't know how to be logical and everybody is operating off of nothing but emotions. I want to show you what happens. <clears throat> In verse 27, it says, They reported to him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and truly it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. But. That's one of those real small, massive words in your Bible. You know, the land is great. It's flowing with milk and honey. I mean, here's its fruit. Look at this stuff for crying out loud. But, look at what they say. But the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are walled very great. And we, we saw the descendants of Anak there too. I highlighted that for you on purpose. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, while the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. 
and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan, or in this version, it's Yardan. Uh, there's no J, there's no J sound in Hebrew. Uh, so <laughs> it's more like Yardan. Um, when you pick up from here in verse 30, I want you to notice that here it says that, and Caleb silenced the people before Moses. These guys are giving this report. Caleb is one of the 12 that goes in there. They're giving this bad report. Caleb immediately jumps up and quiets everybody down. And I think even these other 10 guys or whoever's speaking, it's almost like Caleb gets up and goes, you guys need to zip it. <clears throat> he says he does this right in front. It's like he steps up right there, if you will, in front of Moses, almost like defending Moses. And he says, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are certainly able to overcome it. He's, he's like forget what these guys are saying. Look, we need to go in here and take the land. Remember, God has given this to us. We, we just need to go do what God has told us to do. But I want you to notice now what it says in verse 31. And this is where you have to pay special. We need to read our Bibles in context. We also need to slow down when we read it and pay attention to the words used, and it'll explain a lot more to us. It says, but the men who had gone up with him, said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel an evil report of the land which they spied out, saying, The idea here is that they turned from Moses and started talking to the people. Moses sent them in there... <clears throat> to spy out the land, and to come back and give him a report. So what do they do? They come back, <clears throat> they come before Moses, they start to tell him. Caleb gets up and he's like, look, we need to go in here and take the land. We need to go in here and do this. Can you, you have to imagine the conversations that these 12 guys had on the way back. I don't think this sprung up as soon as they show up in front of Moses. As a matter of fact, 10 of them say we can't do it. The majority said we can't do this. <clears throat> Two of them say, yes, we can. God's given it to us. We can do this. <clears throat> I want you to notice something. I've been, I've been studying the Bible since I was a teenager. I've been in the ministry I don't know how long. I'm not sure I have ever seen a place in Scripture where the majority was right. As a matter of fact, anytime you turn, anytime you find in Scripture, or watch this, in societies where you're involved with mob rule, it is never based on facts, and I've never seen them right. Part of the problem we have in the United States and around the world today, it's called social media. Here's the downside of it. Now, I use it a lot, quite honestly, to get news directly from Israel. It's the fastest place I can gather it because of the people I'm following and the agencies and stuff that I'm following on Facebook. And there's a lot of people on Facebook that I have quit following because of the garbage they post. 
Um, and so I've really cleaned up my Facebook page, the feed, because it's an algorithm. So it's going to give you the things that you keep looking at and clicking on and, and anyhow. But the downside is this. <clears throat> Nothing has to be based on fact. And it goes out instantly. And it not only goes out to your friends, but if you click on it and you like it or you make a comment or you share it, then it's going out to your friends that aren't connected with that friend. And then it keeps mushrooming. And that's why everybody will get on Facebook and they're trying to get a million likes or they say, please do this and make this go viral. I need this to go viral. Those are the ones that I instantaneously don't usually pay a lot of attention to. <laughs> um, if you're begging for it to go viral, then it's probably not going to go viral. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's not as genuine. Um, here's the problem. But when all that goes out and it gets spread, and a lot of times not based on actual facts, people's emotions get kicked in, and then people start reacting off of emotions instead of what is fact. And folks, that's why you see people using social media to promote their cause, to get people emotionally riled up, to go do what they want them to do, even when it's not based on fact. And quite honestly, there's no way to get this genie back in that bottle. It's just not going to happen. And I've said this before. God said at the end of time, he will literally send a spirit of delusion on the people so that they will believe a lie and not believe the truth. And I think some of the technology, technology in and of itself is not bad. So your computer is not an evil thing. It's those that are using it for evil. So don't misread what I'm saying here. <clears throat> but what I'm saying, I think some of the technology and the stuff that we're seeing is just part of that that God is literally unleashing, I think, on the world. I think the spirit of delusion's already been thrown out there. That's my opinion. I think it's already out there. And that's why with some people, there's, there's no reasoning you can't even talk to some people logically about stuff because they're just too emotionally involved, and it, it just doesn't matter. Blue is red, green is yellow, black is white, up is down, down is up, in is out. It just, it just doesn't even matter. <clears throat> so this is where social media can be a blessing, and it also can be a curse, and you're seeing it pretty much every day. Pretty much every day. But let's, let's go on because there's something I want you to see here. Because it also says in verse 28, <clears throat> because this is what they were scared of. It says, and we saw the descendants of Anak there also. He says, the people there are big. The cities are fortified. They're very, they've got these really high walls. Um, this is a nation that became a nation two years ago. That Before that, they were slaves and they had nothing. They're trying to figure out how to get along with each other. And they're saying, okay, now we're going to go in here and fight these people that are organized and they're big and strong. And on top of that, we saw these giants. When you continue on, <clears throat> um, it's, it says in verse 31, it says, uh, the, uh, the men, they, they said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we and they gave the children of Israel an evil report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land 
through which we have gone as spies is a land eating up its inhabitants. Just standing there with a pile of grapes so big it took two of them to bring it in. But what are they saying? This land is eating up the people that live there. <laughs> They're really referring to themselves. And all the people whom we saw in it were men of great size. That's not the ones they're about to mention, though. They saw these men of great size. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, of the Nephilim. That's why I highlighted it back up in verse 28. The sons of Anak are connected with the Nephilim. Evidently, some of them, or descendants of them, or something, or they did it again, survived the flood or the fall that happened in Genesis chapter 6 happened again. This is not in your notes. You might want to write this down there on the bottom of this page. You might want to write down Genesis 6 verses 2 through 4. <clears throat> it's one of those verses that most pastors are simply not going to talk about because it's just too weird. But it says that these sons of God saw that the children of the, the daughters of men became beautiful and they went and basically had illicit sex with them and bore these hybrids called Nephilim. Nephal in Hebrew means to fall or be fearful. Some want to say, well, these are just bullies. Well, it's kind of strange that they're referred to as giants and men of great size and big and fearful and awesome. And I, I don't see it that way at all. I think that's exactly what happened, what the scripture says. I don't think we have to solve God's problems that aren't a problem if we just read the Bible for what it says. <clears throat> because then it describes this about these Nephilim, not that they were just bullies. These people aren't necessarily scared of bullies. They're scared of these giants. It says, and we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we were in their eyes. They're saying these guys were so big that we felt like we were grasshoppers compared to them. They were scared of them. Um, <clears throat> you know the story of David and Goliath? Goliath was a descendant of these people. That's why the army of Israel under Saul didn't want to go out there and fight against him. But a young lad named David who had been fighting if you will, lions and tigers and bears watching sheep out in the wilderness, they, he comes up and he goes, who is this Philistine defying the Lord God Almighty and profaning his name out here in public? Saul tries to put his armor on him. He goes, I can't do it in this. He goes down there and he gets five smooth stones. I know I've mentioned this before, but you know why he got five stones? Serious. Goliath had four brothers. He walked down there, ran down there to meet him. He says, you come to me with sword and spear. I come to you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And today, your body is going to be food for the buzzards. It's exactly what happened. Um, he was a descendant of these. <clears throat> so <clears throat> they give this bad report. If you'll turn over to page two on your notes, it says these giants are not strong. This is something that I wrote here for you. These giants are not stronger than Yahovah himself. You remember God said, listen, you want you to send these spies in there. 
This is the land I'm giving the people of Israel. You know, the guy that parted the Red Sea, the guy that came down on the mountain and burnt the top of the mountain, the guy that spoke to you, gave you my word, my law, you know, the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day, the guy that did all the plagues in Egypt, parted the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army, decimated Egypt, gave you the spoils of Egypt when you did nothing. I'm giving you the land. And they're like, well, we can't do this. These giants are not stronger than Yahweh, and yet these unfaithful spies can only see, watch this, their own abilities. What were they looking at? We were like grasshoppers in our own eyes and in their eyes also. There is no comment in here about them talking about God, Yahovah, what he's done, and how they are not stronger than their God. They say, we can't do it. The land devours its inhabitants. We were so small compared to these giants, we felt like we were like grasshoppers, like bugs compared to them. And yet they forgot who they really belonged to. Therefore, they defile the very name and the word of Yehovah by declaring everything impossible and desire to go back to Egypt. They say we would be better off if we went back to Egypt. This is incredible. The very death that they were delivered from in Egypt two years before, they bring upon themselves on the very moment they arrive at the promised land. They end up dying in the wilderness. We'll get to that. Uh, but the very death that they were delivered from two years before by the God that's giving them the land, by them giving this evil report, on the moment they're about to go into the land to start possess the land, they give themselves over to the very death they just escaped. They literally wish it upon themselves And that's exactly what happens. Remember us talking about measure for measure? You reap what you sow, and God will give you exactly what you ask for. Well, he gave it to them. Before we go on, though, because there's something really interesting about this story and about these spies, Caleb and Joshua. Fascinating, fascinating information. So you get to... Uh, this next, I've got a verse here for you. It's out of Joshua 14, 6. <coughs> it says, And the children of Yehuda or Judah, came to Yahashua in Gilgal, and to Caleb, the son of Yephunah, the Kenzanite, Kenizite, I'm sorry, the Kenizite, and said to him, You know the, Lord, the word which Yahweh said to Moshe, to the man of Elohim concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. This is when Caleb basically comes up to Joshua and he's saying, look, remember when we came here the first time? By this time, Caleb's an old man. It's been another 40 years. Now they started to go into the land to possess the land. And after that, Caleb goes, you remember what God said to Moses? I want that mountain. And it was a mountain infested with these giants and these bad people. And Caleb goes, I want that mountain because I'm going to go take that mountain 
according to the word that God gave us. Man, wouldn't you like to be like Caleb? All right, uh, since this is on recording, I'm going to ask that question again. Wouldn't you like to be like Caleb? Yes. Oh, man, isn't it? <laughs> doesn't that even feel better when you can respond like that? Of course we would. <clears throat> but let's look at this guy, Caleb. Fascinating. He's a Kenizzite. Look at that. I've got a reference here for you out of Easton's Bible Dictionary. It's the name of a tribe referred to in the covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis 15, 19. They're not mentioned in the original inhabitants of Canaan. They could have possibly inhabited some part of Arabia or some part of the Sinai. Here's the deal. Here's what I want you to see. Caleb is not Hebrew. Caleb comes from the land they're going in to possess. It's part of the covenant that God made with Abraham and he lists the area and these Kenzanites are part of the people that live in that land that God says, I'm going to give this land to you. This is where Caleb comes from. So when he's out there spying the land, watch this. He's spying out some of his ancestral homeland. But here's the key thing I want you to understand He's not Hebrew. He's, a not, he's not a naturally born descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's important because of the rest of this passage that we're going to be looking at. <clears throat> so here's what I want you to see when you go back to Numbers 13. Now we're going to jump back a little bit. We're going to look at this concept here, this describing these men that are some of these spies. So you get back to Numbers 13, verses 6 through 8. It says, From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. I've got this here in the ESV for a reason. And from the tribe of Issachar, Igal, the son of Joseph. And from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. Can somebody go, uh-oh, or huh, or <laughs> Hoshea, son of noon? Interesting. So here's the first thing I want you to notice. <clears throat> Caleb is a representative of the tribe of Judah. Yet he's not Hebrew, but he is seen as a leader among the people of the tribe of Judah. You should never think that God cannot use you because of anything in your past or your bloodline or whatever. Don't hang your hat on your bloodline or your ancestry. You hang your hat on God. So Caleb is a representative of the tribe of Judah. And for now, let's say this, Hoshea is a representative of the tribe of Ephraim. I'm going to ask you a question. Is there anything in your Bible by accident? Did anything happen to these people by accident? You think it's an accident that Caleb represents Judah, and I'll go ahead and say it, Joshua, his name gets changed, is a representative of Ephraim. It's not an accident. Folks, it's a picture of Israel 
It's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of end time events. It's fascinating. It is so cool. Watch this. You get to Numbers 13, verse 16. It says, these were the names of the the men who Moses sent out to. So he, he lists the names, and then he has a summary statement here in verse 16. And he says, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Now I'm going to give it to you in the scriptures version because this is the only way it even makes any sense. When you read it like this in the English, and especially when you insert letters and pronunciations that aren't in the Hebrew, you don't catch it. It does. It just you go okay. So he changed his name from Hoshea to Joshua. Okay, so now his name's Joshua. We'll look at it in the scriptures version. It says, these are the names of the men whom Moshe, Moses, sent to spy out the land. And Moshe called Hoshea, son of Nun, Yahashua. His real name in Hebrew is not Joshua, but Yahashua. So I've got a little note for you down there below that because this changed his name. This change in his name changed the meaning of his name from Yahovah has saved to Yahovah will save. Now, something else I want you to, you might want to write this down. When Moses changes his name, it's before they went in to spy the land. It's before his report, not after. It's before they leave. <clears throat> These are the men, and Moses changes his name to Yahashua. He changes it from God will save, from God has saved to God will save. It's like God's going to do this, but it's also a prophecy of the Messiah. So here in the scriptures, you've got Matthew one verse twenty-one. This is the prophecy about. Jesus coming, and she shall give birth to a son, and you shall call his name, and in this version it is, Yehoshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. And who's going to do the saving? Yahovah is going to do it. Now, I've got the, a note for you right below this. This Hebrew spelling is transliterated as Yahashua, and the shortened form is Yeshua, from which we end up with the name Jesus in English from the Latin or Greek word Jesus. Jesus' name, his real whole full name in Hebrew is Yahashua. The shortened version of that is Yeshua. No problem with saying it that way, um, is Yeshua. And what it means is, this is why it says, because he will save his people from their sins, will save. So Moses changes Hoshea's name to Yahashua from God has delivered or God has saved to God will save. When the Messiah comes, the angel says, and this is what you're going to name him, Yahashua or Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. Isn't that cool? So I've got the actual um, 
Yesu's definition for you down there uh, from the complete word study dictionary. That's just there for your uh, study, if you will. If you'll turn the page to page three. <laughs> so we get back to this chapter 14 where, they, where these spies give this evil report. And they do it by giving this information to the mob, not just to Moses. So instead of just telling Moses what to do, why would they do that? They already know what Moses is going to say, right? I mean, Moses has already proved himself. He's been up and down on that mountain a gazillion times, come down with the tablets and breaks them, grounds up the golden calf and says, now you're going to drink it. I mean, on and on and on. He's speaking to God face to face. He goes into the the tabernacle comes out, the Shekinah glory is dripping off of him, and they're like, you need to put a veil over that mess. We can't look at you. You're scaring us half to death. We can't stand the way you look when you come out from being in God's presence. They're coming back. I guarantee you they had a subcommittee meeting. These 10 guys did on the way back, and they're like, look, these giants will kill us. And these giants they're looking at are not like the giants you would see today. They have that, I can't pronounce it, they have that syndrome where they don't stop growing uh, and they're not, uh, they get really, really tall, but they're also real lanky and they're not as muscular. They're not, they're a little bit uh, out of proportion, if you will, and all that kind of stuff. That's a deformation. <clears throat> These guys uh, were not like that. They were very big, very, very strong, um, scary, Right? They'd be scary. These guys are like, look, we can't, we can't kill these. These are this land is inhabited. This is infested with giants. Uh, we can't go in here and, and do this. I know God's brought us out here, but look, there's one thing we can't do. We can't come back and tell Moses we ain't going in there. Because you know what Moses is going to say? <laughs> We're going in. And they're saying, I don't want to go in because watch this, I don't want my children to die. So instead of just giving it to Moses, they give it to the crowd. So you get to verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. They go nuts. These men are going around spreading this report among God's people. All the, verse 2, And all the children of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, and all the congregation said to them, if only we had died in Mitzrayim, that's the Hebrew word for Egypt, which is the word for burden and slavery. Or if only we had died in this wilderness. Can somebody say, uh-oh? Thank you. In verse 3, it says, and why is Jehovah bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? <clears throat> Can you tell here that the emotions have kicked in and not the brain? They're not dealing with logic with what they've already seen. They've already seen God. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They're eating manna for crying out loud. They saw God. 
74 of them, including Moses, Aaron, and his kids, had a meal with God at the Mount Sinai event. Go back and read it. Crazy. Some of these guys could have been some of those leaders. They could, these are considered leaders of the tribes of Israel. They're saying, man, it'd be better if we fell by the sword or that we died in this wilderness. Why is God bringing us out here to die by the sword that our wives and our children should become a prey? Would it not be better, uh, better for us to turn back to Egypt? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's just go back to the, let's, yeah, let's go back to Egypt. Egypt is decimated. They would rather go back to Egypt than go where God is leading them. And they said to each other, let us appoint a leader and let us turn back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the, all, all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And look at this. And Yahashua, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Yephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their garments. They're, in other words, they're now showing signs of mourning and weeping for what they're seeing happen. In between all of this... <clears throat> Well, let's just go on to verse 11. It says, and God says to Moses, how long shall, look at this, how long shall I be scorned by these people? God says, listen, I'm going to give these, this land to you, and there's giants in the land. I get that. No problem. Uh, I'm going to give them to you. <clears throat> I'm the God of all gods. I'm the God, I, I am above these, if you will, half-breeds, these hybrids, this abomination. Um, I'm going to give you their land. I'm going I'm to do the impossible. I've already been doing the impossible for you. Slow to learn, quick to forget. We're going to see some of the solutions here in just a second. We are the same way. We need to remember what God has done and operate on God's faithfulness and his word, not on what we see or even think or watch this or what we feel. We need to operate off of what God has said and what he has proven to us. God says, Moses, I'm going to say it, Paul Henry. Okay, Moses, dude, why, how long I got to put up with these people scorning me? Their refusal to do what God said is scornful to God himself. And that's the way he's seeing it. It says, and how long shall I not be trusted by them? What's it going to take for them to trust me? <clears throat> I mean, it's like, how many miracles do I have? To, how many Red Seas do I have to part? How many times do I have to open up the earth and swallow the evil ones and leave the good ones? How many times do I have to show up on Mount Sinai? How many times do I have to speak to them personally? How many times do I have to show up? How many tricks do I have to perform before they actually believe that I can do what I say I'm going to do? And it says, because of all these signs that I've done in their midst. And then when you, in between verse 11 and verse 30 is where God basically says, all right, you know what, Moses, I'm done. I'm going to start over with you. And then Moses pleads to God, begs God not to do this, and here's why he tells him not to. He says, God, don't do this, because if you do, 
then the Egyptians and all these people are going to say, you brought them out, but you couldn't sustain them. That is very important for you to help you understand, watch this, all of your Bible. It's part of the key to unlocking your Bible. The sanctity, integrity of God's name, because he said he would do something, and then to not do it is huge. God changes his mind, evidently, or unless he's just testing Moses. We don't know. God said that's what he was going to do. He was going to start over with Moses. He could have. Uh, But Moses says, no, don't do it for this reason. And God then says, okay, I won't. And then look where it gets down to verse 30. Verse 30 says, now he's issuing forth his judgment on the people. It says, none of you except Caleb, son of Yephunah, and Yahashua, son of Nun, shall enter the land which I swore that I would make you dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would become a prey, I'm going to bring them in. And they will know the land which you rejected. (coughs) But as for you, your carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness. What did they just say? They just said it'd be better if we died in the wilderness. And God goes, no problem. It's called Lashon Hurrah, the evil tongue. It's also called measure for measure. So that's what you said you wanted? Then that's what I'm going to give you. You see, you need to be very careful about the words that come out of your mouth. Sometimes God will give you just exactly what you asked for. You ever wonder why just, you ever wonder why negative people just seem to, you seem to be a magnet for them? Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I've, I've been telling a number of people this here lately. It's kind of a, I don't know what it is. Uh, you need to change your atmosphere. You create your atmosphere that's going to attract whatever is attracting. If you're attracting goofy stuff and you want to change that, then change your atmosphere. Change your polarity, if you will. You create the atmosphere that's around you by whatever it is you're pouring into your life, whatever you're surrounding your life with, you're creating that atmosphere. So whatever's coming around, if you want to change it, then change it. You need to be careful about what's coming out of your mouth. Sometimes God gives us what comes out of our mouth. And then we can't understand why we got these problems. And God's like, it's what you asked for. It's what you said. Um, so <clears throat> it says, um, this, I'm going to bring you into the land, bring your children into the land, which you rejected. But as for you, your carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness and your sons shall be wanderers in the wilderness for 40 years and shall bear your whorings until the carcasses, your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days you spot out the land, 40 days, a day for a year, a day for a year, you are to bear your crookedness for 40 years, and you shall know my breaking off, my being done with you. Now look at this. He's going to repeat this. I've got it circled on my notes. I didn't do it on yours, but you might want to. He says, I am Yehovah. I have spoken. I shall do this. Meaning, I've said it. Done. There's no going back. He doesn't change his mind like 
men do. I'm going to do this to all this evil congregation who are meeting against me. In this wilderness, they are consumed, and, they, and there they die. Now look at this. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing an evil report of the land, that evil tongue, that evil report, that measure for measure, even those men who brought the evil report about the land died by plague before Yahovah. The picture is they died right there, dropped, boom. They didn't get consumed, in other words, over the next 40 years. They die immediately. Of those men who went out to spy the land, only, look at this, Yahashua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephun, Eliah, remained alive. It's that measure for measure. And folks, this is why when they see all of this, they're like, oh, no, 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 we're sorry. We'll go ahead and go in the land <coughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll take the land. And God's like, you better not do it. Moses says, don't do it. God's not going with you. And they go in there without God, without the ark, and they get the tar beat out of them. Because God said, I'm not going to go with you. You're going to die. You said you wanted to die in the wilderness? No problem. You're going to die in the wilderness? And, and watch this. For 40 years, you're going to watch this happening. You're going to know for the next 40 years that your rebellion about me and seeing all of these people dying for the next 40 years in the land because you wouldn't do what I said, because you said you were scared for your kids, I'm going to raise up your kids to be the warriors I called you to be. And they're going to do your job. And you're going to sit here in the, in the wilderness and die and, and realize the promised land was right there, and you wouldn't take it because you were too scared. You were scared by what you saw instead of listening to the God that called you. Uh, absolutely Amazing. So then on the heels of that, you get to chapter 15, and it almost sounds a little disjointed. You're like, okay, uh, where did this come from? You get into chapter 15, all of a sudden he starts just out of nowhere, starts talking about, so when you get into the land and you're going to make sacrifices, you're going to do this, this is how you make all these sacrifices. So this is a massive shift, but it's really not, <clears throat> and I'll show you why. He says, uh, he goes on, he's describing all this. Then he, when we get to verse 13, it says, Let all who are native do so with them in bringing near an offering made by fire, a sweet fragrance to Yahovah. And when the stranger sojourns with you, or whoever is among you throughout your generations and would make an offering made by fire, a sweet fragrance to Yahovah, as you do, so he does. Verse 15. One law is for you of the assembly, meaning native born, and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a law, look at this, forever throughout your generations, as you are, so is the stranger before Yahovah. How long is forever? So did it change when Jesus showed up? Thank you for that laugh. Of course not. 
Did it, in other words, did it change when the real Yahashua, Yeshua, shows up, the author and finisher of our faith, the author of God's teachings and instructions? He says, when you live this way, even a stranger that sojourns in among you, meaning someone that's not native born. I know I've said this before, but some of you are new here. I took some Hebrew online from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I had some really fun conversations with my teachers. And I remember telling my teacher one time, we got to debating about the feasts of all things. <clears throat> and I'm telling him how it's really supposed to be happening. He goes, oh, no, no, no. I was like, no, no, no. Dude, this is your feast. You should know this. And oh, by the way, I know I'm not quote unquote Jewish or Hebrew, but uh, I've been grafted into Israel. So according to, watch this, your own Torah, you have to love me and treat me as a native born Hebrew, whether you like it or not. <laughs> he was totally silent. It was absolutely hilarious. This is what God is saying right here. And he says it in other places where he says, you're to treat the sojourner, the sojourning among you as though he's native born. You're not to treat him like a quote unquote Gentile because watch this, you can't be Gentile and connected to Israel. You can't be a believer in Yahashua, in Yeshua and be Gentile. That's actually an oxymoron statement. It, it, it literally does, it's, it doesn't, it's all in water. You're either of the nations or you're of the people of Yehovah, period. That's why the apostle Paul said in Romans 11, we've been grafted in to this story. We've been grafted in. We're not separate. We're part of what God is doing. And that's why from the very beginning, God goes, what's this? I'm going to do things that nobody can, no human being can map this together. I'm going to take a guy out of the land that you're going to possess. I'm going to put him in a position through who knows what all happened in his ancestry, right? He ends up with Israel coming out of Egypt. He ends up being a leader of the tribe of Judah. He ends up being one of the spies that gives a good report. He's not Hebrew. He's of the nations grafted into Israel. And he comes back bringing a good report with a type of Messiah, Joshua, Yahashua, the same name that Yeshua gets. And it gets better. <laughs> uh, hold on. We'll try to get through all of this. <clears throat> I stopped short. It says in verse 15, one law is for you of the assembly and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a law forever throughout your generations. As you are, so is the stranger before Yahovah. Then look at this, verse 16. One Torah and one right ruling is for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. One, not two, not multiple, one. You get to verse 29, because then he starts talking about people breaking God's law, either by mistake or on purpose, because he makes, uh, there are qualifications, there's uh, restitution, if you will, that can be made. So in verse 29, it says, for him who does whatever by mistake, there's one Torah, both for him who is native among the children of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns in their midst, but... 
The being who does whatever, look at this, defiantly. Yeah. There's no remedy. There's no remedy for defiant sin. When God tells you this is what he wants you to do and you don't do it, I mean, you can say you're, it doesn't mean that you're not getting into heaven. Don't read into what, what I'm saying. I, I didn't say that. I'm just saying there, there's, <clears throat> there's no going back. There's no, quote, unquote, fixing that. But who does whatever defiantly, whether he's native or stranger, he reviles Yahovah. That's why God looks down on that so severely. We have this attitude, we're saved in Jesus, therefore we can do whatever we want. All we got to do is say we're sorry. Well, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get into the kingdom, but um, there are ramifications. Don't forget that. Uh, <clears throat> he says, because he says, look, when you do that, you're reviling me. I told you to do something. You didn't do it. Anybody here other than me ever think that or know that you were supposed to do something? You didn't do it. I can't be the only one in the room. Some of you don't want to raise your hand. I mean, I got plenty of regrets. As my, my life is, you know, on the other side of half now, <clears throat> I'm trying as hard as I can to have a gazillion less regrets on this back half than the ones I had on the front half. Um, <clears throat> it says, and that being shall be cut off from among his people. He means physically killed, dead. Because he has despised the word of Yahovah and broken his command, that being shall certainly be cut off. His crookedness is upon him. He, when he says cut off, <coughs> he's not talking about losing your salvation. That's a totally separate thing. Most people get really confused when it comes to the Old Testament, and they think <clears throat> God gave all these laws, and people in the Old Testament were saved uh, by the sacrifices and everything wrong. When he said, look, when you do these things and you go in the land and you do what I tell you, you will live. That's what he meant. You'll go in the land and physically live and I'll physically bless you and be with you and all that. You'll live. But if you go in the land and don't do what I say, then you're going to die. Just that simple. Doesn't mean that you stop being Hebrew or this whole idea that you lose out on eternity. No. Uh, it has to do with physical. So a lot of people read into that when it says, God says, when you, go the, you do this and you go into the land, you will live. They go, oh, so that's how they got saved. See how we read into something that that's not what it says and we think emotionally instead of just logically based on what it says. And then we twist it around and say, so the Old Testament people, they got saved by the sacrifices and we got saved by Jesus. And now everything's changed. When in fact, nothing has changed. That's why there's going to be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. But that's a whole other sermon. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> uh, it just simply means that his crookedness, his sin is going to be upon him and he's going to be cut off. Then look at this. This is, once again, 
a passage where you go, okay, oh, I don't understand. Here's another one that seems disjointed unless you read your scriptures in context. And that's why I'm covering all of this with us tonight because it really makes sense. And I'll try to tie this together in just a second. Verse 32, it says, you know, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And they put him, and you get to verse 34, it says, and they put him under guard because it was not yet declared what should be done to him. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and said, the man shall certainly be put to death. All the congregation stoning him with stones outside the camp. So they kill him because he's picking up sticks. <clears throat> now then, <laughs> when you first read this, you go, so this guy's on the Sabbath. He's breaking the Sabbath. He's out there. I don't know, he's picking up sticks. <clears throat> and so God says he needs to die because he's picking up sticks. You have to get into a lot of the Jewish, if you will, um, commentaries on this and they're all very confident that what is being described here is that this man wasn't just picking up sticks he's picking up firewood because that was his job business um <clears throat> he was working it wasn't like he went outside his tent you know the fire was going down they needed to cook some manna picked up a few sticks to keep the fire going or something, you know, to cook the manna. He was out gathering wood, firewood, to quote-unquote sell or barter with. He was working, and he, this was in defiance. He just, what did he just get through saying? If you do something by mistake, <clears throat> there's a solution for that. But when you do it defiantly, knowingly, what's going to happen? You're going to physically die. And then there's this story here of a guy breaking the Sabbath for his work, and God kills him over it. To make sure that we don't do that or that there's a solution. Does anybody here need help with remembering stuff? So God, I mean... They were like that. So God's like, okay, look, <clears throat> let's just cover the bases. You can imagine God getting kind of tired, right? Telling Moses, okay, look, let's try to solve their problem by doing this. <laughs> let's try to help them out with this. So you get to Numbers 15, verses 38 through 41. So it's, this is right after the stoning of the guy that's picked up the sticks on the Sabbath. Speak to the children of Israel, and you're going to say to them, they're to make zitzit or zitzits or tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. How long would that be? Forever. So throughout their generations, and to put a blue cord on or in the zitzit on the corners. It shall be for you a zitzit, and watch this, and you shall see it, and shall remember all the commands of Yahovah and shall do them, and not search after your own heart. Hmm. So God here is telling us, don't go after your own heart, go after my law. Does that sound contradictory to maybe something we've read that we thought the Apostle Paul said? When he says, you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. You know, I've become all things to all men by that. By all means possible, I might save some. He wasn't saying that he could do whatever he wanted to do and everything was okay because Yeshua came. That is not what he was saying. And that's a whole other sermon 
Again, we, we can't even chase that. <clears throat> Here he's saying, God is saying, listen, I want you to make a tassel and I want you to hang it on your four-cornered garment and I want you to put a blue thread in it or on it. It needs to have a blue thread in it. That's the only detail given to us for these tassels. The only, there's only means that there has to be at least one blue thread in it. Other than that, it's up to you. Make a tassel with a blue thread on it. Why? So that you will see it. Not your neighbor, not your, it's not for other people to see, it's for you to see. This is why Jesus in the gospel says, man, these rabbis, they like to make their tassels long and their phylacteries large so that people will see them. He's like, no, you need to wear it so that you will remember and remember all my commands and do them and not search after your own heart or your own eyes after which you went a whoring. He's reminding them, remember what you just did? So that you remember and shall do all my commands, look at this, and be set apart unto your God, your Elohim. I am Yahovah, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, the land of Egypt, to be your Elohim, I am Yahovah, your Elohim. <coughs> I'm God. Make a tassel. So here's mine. And I have it it's black uh, with a blue thread because it only says it has to have a blue thread. They put, were to put it on their four-cornered garment, which would have been their prayer shawl. But it was there for them to remember. You remember the lady in the gospel accounts that had the issue of blood and grabbed the corner of Jesus' garment? What she grabbed was his seat seat. She grabbed his tassel. I also uh, have one here on my bag that I carry. I also have one on my turning signal, I think, sh uh, sh shift in my truck. I have them around to remind me. <clears throat> and I put this one here. I only have one. That's a whole nother debate, but I have one and I have it on this pocket. Now my phone is so big, I wish they would stop, but now my phone is so big, I can't put it in my front pocket anymore. I put it here in the back pocket. Guess what always gets in the way when I put my phone in my pocket? My Z seat. It's there to remind me because I have to try to work every way possible to change my atmosphere. So everything that's on the walls at my house, the music that I listen to, the stuff that I read, the people I'm willing to follow on Facebook or not follow is there to influence my atmosphere to help me love my God better and want to serve him so that he's glorified, not so that I get blessings. The blessings, that's just the icing on the cake. If it happens, fine. But my goal for my life from this day forward is more clear so that I will live my life in such a way that my God is glorified. And in so doing, I'm telling those other demons, you ain't all that. As a matter of fact, my God is God. And I read the end of the book and I know where you go and I know where I go. And it's not based on what I'm doing. It's based on what Yeshua did for me. The real Yahashua who will save and has saved me. <laughs> Made me do this by myself, right? 
And so that should be our life. Amen? Amen. So the problem is, I've now been wearing this long enough that it's, it's just what I do. I wear them out all the time. I now put them on with clips. I make them last year at Sukkot the ta- at Tabernacles. We taught some of you guys how to tie them, and we, we would tie them. People ask, you know, should women wear them or whatever? I'm like, so women, I guess you don't have a problem with your atmosphere. It's only us guys. Um, I think, yeah, women should wear them. It's also something God said to do. Why? Well, because we're just, well, dim-witted. We just forget and we just can't remember and we need all kinds of tools around us to help us to remember to do what God said. So I wear it. But the problem is now I've worn it so long, it's just, it's kind of, it's just there. It's like, like putting my wallet on. You know, when I'm getting dressed and I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just putting all my stuff on, you know, put knife goes in this pocket and the wallet goes here and the keys go here and the tzitzit goes here. And, you know, it's just put all my stuff on, you know, to go on with my day. And <clears throat> that bothers me now because when I first started wearing it, trust me, I was conscious. Anybody seeing my tzitzit? They think I'm Jewish. They think I'm weird, you know. And it felt, it did, it felt weird the first time I put it on. I'm like, this is, I don't know, it's kind of weird. And why is that strange? What does that mean? That means I'm married. 44 years married. Hallelujah. Um, it's also there to remind me that I'm married. And it's a sign to everybody else that I'm married. And happily married. Hmm. So that should be what? A sign to remind me that I'm happily married to my king and that everybody else should know that I'm married to my king. It's got nothing to do with trying to be Jewish or hold on to my salvation. That's what other people make it out to be. We have no problem with that and other symbols and signs that says who we are and what we do. You guys wear uniforms. Praise God, you know, if you wear a uniform, you know who you are when you're out there on the street, right? Says who you are and what you're doing. We have no problem with those kinds of things, but when it comes to something that's right out of the Bible, I don't know if I want to do that because that's just kind of weird. Well, the reason it's weird is because we're dim-witted and we need stuff to remind us what to do. I know y'all aren't, but I am, and so I need it. I want, you, I want to show you something. I'm trying to tie this together now. If you'll turn the page, I want you to see something. It's absolutely amazing. This is really, really cool. <clears throat> this is in Joshua 2, verse 1. Fast forward. Joshua, son of Nun, he sends two men or two spies in secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab Rahab, and lodged there. Rahab becomes a descendant or uh, an ancestor, if you will, of of Jesus, of Yeshua, a prostitute, Moabite prostitute. You think God's all that concerned about bloodlines? He's not. He's concerned about those that love him or called according to his purpose. 
How many spies came back with a good report? How many did Joshua send in? Two. Think maybe that God, maybe that uh, Joshua learned a, a pretty powerful lesson. The more people you send in, the more people you have involved on a committee, the more possibilities you have for trouble. <laughs> the majority is just simply, it's usually never right. Mob rule is never right. It's never right. All you got to do is have one idiot come in a room and scream fire and watch the mob operate off of emotions when there is no fire and people die. They get trampled to death. Because some moron yells fire in a crowded room and people start getting scared and running and people get literally murdered, you know, over that. When there's not even a fire in the building, it's all on emotions. The majority is hardly ever right because the emotions get kicked in. You can't tell what's going on and you end up getting caught up in the flow. Folks, that's what you're seeing happening on a global scale right now. And it's all getting more funneled towards Israel for a reason. It's demonic. That's all connected to God's name. Let's go back to this. So Joshua sends two spies. They find Rahab. They lodge there and he helps, she helps them get out. You jump forward to verse 23. The two men return. They came down from the hills and passed over, and they came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Who was melting the first time? It's, and it's been how long now? It's been 40 years. These giants are still in the land. But who's scared now? The giants are scared. The people are melting and God truly has given us this land. And I want you to notice, they don't go and tell the people, they go and they tell Joshua. They go and they tell the leadership the man that God has appointed to lead his people, they don't leave it up to mob rule. They take it to the leadership and say, this is what we're supposed to do, and God truly has given us this land. I know that there's some of them that are going to be scared, but that's okay. God's going to give us this place. And remember, he says, I want you to pay special attention to Jericho. Remember how Jericho fell? They march around it, and they praise God, and they sound the shofar, and the, then the walls fall. God did it. <clears throat> now, this is where this truly gets interesting. I gave you another passage here in Zechariah 8, 23. It says, um, this, is toward the, this is a prophecy toward the end of, uh, about the end of the, end of the ages, the end of time. It says, thus says Yahovah of hosts, God, the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the languages of the nations Take hold, yea, they shall take hold of the edge of the garment. What are they grabbing? They're grabbing the seat seats. They're grabbing, it says they're going to grab the edge, the corners, the edge of your garment of a man, a Yehudite, a, in other words, a Hebrew, <clears throat> saying, let us go with you for we have heard that Elohim, God, is with you. Watch this. Joshua, Yahashua, 
represented who? The tribe of Ephraim. Yeah, you're, it's clicking now, isn't it? The tribe of Ephraim. Caleb represented which tribe? The tribe of Judah. You got the two houses of Israel. The nation splits. God said, this gives me goosebumps, which I know this, this is of God. Listen, you need to listen to me. God said, listen, this is what's going to happen. <clears throat> and I'm going to be foreshadowing this before you ever even get into the land. I'm going to, he's worked this out before Israel ever became a nation by making sure that Caleb is even there. And Caleb is connected to Judah, the house of Judah, the two southern tribes, when the nation splits up. The ten northern tribes are also called the house of Israel, and watch this, and Ephraim. It's the two that come back with the positive report. It's the two that stayed alive through the whole process of going through the wilderness while everybody's dying saying, guess what? We're going into the promised land. And then God tells his prophet Zechariah, this is what's going to happen. And when you read all of those prophecies, you know that God brings back everybody of the all 12 tribes. It hasn't happened yet, people. It has started, but it hasn't happened yet. And we know, anyways, it just hasn't. It's about to happen, but it hasn't. He says, and when that happens, and when it happens to this degree, the nations will realize I am God. And they will realize I'm doing this through you, the Yehudites, the Hebrews, the Israelites, those that love me. And 10 people of these other... Why would he say 10? 10 and 2. There's 10 and 2. There's always 10 and 2. The 10 northern tribes, the 2 southern tribes. It goes on and on. There were 10 that were disobedient and 2 that stayed obedient. There were 10 tribes that got divorced and 2 that didn't. He's going to bring all 12 back and he uses the 2 to say, guess what? Of the nations and the other 10 are going to grab your seats and say, we know that God is with you. We want to go with you. It's a picture of Jesus bringing us into the promised land and grafting us into Israel's story, or watch this, history, which is his story with Israel and grafting us into this beautiful story and saying, I haven't changed. I haven't changed my mind. I haven't changed my, the, the way I work. I haven't changed my law. I'm doing everything I said I would do. I said it. I declared it. I will do it. If I don't do it, then he ain't God. And if he's not, we got a problem. That's why he's going to do everything he said he was going to do. And he's grafted us into this powerful love story where he's proclaiming who he is through you and I and through his people. That's powerful, isn't it? Our Savior has had this worked out before the foundations of the world were ever laid. He also knew from eternity past that you would be here. 
that we would be coming to grips with these truths from Scripture and we would be finished with listening to or reading sermon sound bites that make no sense when compared to what the Scriptures actually say. What happened to the men who led God's people astray? Folks, this is why I did not want to be a pastor. I begged God, don't ask me to do this. In the book of James, it says, don't let many of you desire to be a teacher because with that will come a greater judgment. I consider handling the word of God seriously. My eternal estate hangs on how I handle God's word. I don't care. I, well, I do. I care more about what my God thinks about me than what anybody in this room or anybody that ever listens to these messages think about me. I'm not going to answer to you for eternity. We are fickle. I'm fickle. I'm sorry if that offends you, but you're fickle. You don't even like the same foods today that you used to like when you were a teenager. Uh, you don't, anyways, we're fickle. We change. God doesn't. He doesn't. And how I do this today will impact me for eternity. And I do not want to defame my God who died for me. So I'm going to tell and do my best to explain what the Scriptures actually say, even if that means there's going to be 20 of us. I, I can't help it. I can't do anything other than share God's truth. And folks, this is why, and I'm going to say this, we, just, we took up an offering. I take that, that's sacred. So you just need to understand that I take that with the same attitude Whatever comes through here, that belongs to God. And it, and it will not be handled uh, in a personal, self-gratifying way. It just won't. And the people around that know me can tell you that I almost run from it to a fault. I don't want to know what's going on with it. I don't want to make decisions when it comes to money. I don't even like my name being on the account. But the bankers tell me it's got to be on the account in case there's got to be a change. You're the only one there. Your name needs to be on the account. I'm like, I don't even want my name on the account. And they say, well, appreciate that, but it needs to be on the account. I don't like messing with it. I don't like looking at it. I don't like knowing, and I usually don't know who gives what, if they give or what, because I don't want it to affect the way I look at any person around here. I don't want to be connected with it. Why? Because it's not mine. It belongs to God. Whatever we give and whatever we do here is to glorify God. For us to grow closer together and closer to Him, to glorify Him. So <clears throat> whatever comes through here goes to pay bills and stuff and sending money to missionaries. And we've got, I think we're about to send about $2,000 or something like that to uh, Joel uh, and that's uh, the missionary we're helping that's in Israel. You talk about a tough place to be reaching out to people uh, with Arab friends and stuff and going into some very tough places. Um, 
And so we've got about $2,000 we're going to send to them from this little fellowship. God is good, amen? Absolutely awesome. Um, but watch this, but he's holy. And he's not playing games. He will be glorified, and he wants us to glorify him, and he wants you and I to live our lives in a powerfully positive, um, offensive way. Offensive, not offensive, but an offensive way. Tearing down strongholds and making sure that all these other demons know you can't touch this. That's why the scripture says when we stand firm in our faith, should the devil himself stand before you, he will run and flee. The devil himself, Lucifer, the most powerful creature God created, the most dumb that fell from heaven with a third of God's angels. Should he stand here in all of his might and power, we could look at him with a smile on our faces and say, you could even do your best to destroy this body, but you can't touch me, dude. You're a fallen seraphim. You're a fallen angel, a mighty one, doomed to destruction. Yeshua, whom you murdered, is my Savior, and he is God most high. So what giant should we be afraid of? I'm telling you, a demon could come in your house tonight, head spin around, spew out green stuff, whatever, you know, <laughs> all these dumb movies. You could sit there and laugh and go, and? It's a cheap parlor trick. And who are you? And what are you to me? Nothing. You think I'm scared of you? There's only one thing I'm scared of, and that's disappointing my God. So what else you got? You ought to go find somebody else to scare. Go say boo to somebody else. I'm not impressed. Because I believe that the God that died for me is going to see me safely home. The God that brought us through the Red Sea tore down cities and strongholds, did miracle after miracle after miracle, sent his own son, died on the cross, rose from the grave. People rose from the grave when he died, folks, went into town and started testifying what just happened. Yeah. Ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I right now. This Yeshua is physically going to come back to this earth, reign and rule right here for a thousand years. And should we make it through that tribulation period, we will be granted an incredible blessing because that same God and King Yeshua said, blessed is the man who makes it to that 1335th day. So I got news. I don't plan on dying anytime soon. And I don't, I don't plan on dying during that tribulation period. I plan on being so close to my God that I can make it to the final end and walk into that kingdom with my God and King and my family, if it so be, and praise my God because I would be willing to give up anything and everything that this world would offer to know His truth and what it really says even if the world not go.
with me or with you. So you're crazy, pastor. That's what I've got planned. That's what I'm working on. And begging God every day to forgive me for all of my stupidity. As I was doing just the other day, messing with our sheep, crying out to my God, and knowing that he was there. And I have times when I physically sense God's restoration and forgiveness. I don't know how to explain it. Uh, there's a day coming when we'll have an opportunity to glorify our king. Chances are we'll have little to nothing in the process. We'll be in the wilderness. It's going to be like that first exodus. Maybe we'll be eating manna. We'll have us some manna bagels. <laughs> manna waffles, manna burgers. I don't know. But I know there's going to be 144,000 sealed by God that are going to do wonders. And I honestly believe it's going to be children that God is going to supernaturally feel. <laughs> Just like in this story, you were afraid your children were going to die. And I'll use a child to go in there and conquer the land. And it's a reason why in Revelation it says those 144,000 are virgins. I think they're children. My opinion, I don't know. But I think they're children. I'm so blessed by these kids. They are a blessing. Wow, that was sermon number three or four, but God is good, amen?